Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science The Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Jan van Hoof, who is a Dutch biologist and was a professor of comparative physiology at Utrecht University in the Netherlands for over three decades. And this is a special episode for two reasons. Of course, because we have Jan van Hoof as a special guest, but also because iBuzz is celebrating a one year anniversary today. So happy Buzz Day to us. This episode will be part of a podcast series with Jan van Hoof, who not only has an excellent mind in science, teaching and research, but is also a storyteller extraordinaire. We recorded this podcast in a different way than you are used to, as Jan has trouble hearing, but no trouble sharing many different and extraordinary stories. So get some tea, have a seat, maybe you're out on a walk or anything else you'd like to do when listening to a podcast and let yourself be transported back into time with stories by Jan van Hove. Here I am, Jan van Hove. I was born in 1936, and that is precisely 85 years ago. My God. Anyway, I was born in a zoo. And when people want to kid me, they say, you can still see that, and that's true. I grew up in the Burgers Zoo in Arnhem in the Netherlands. And that zoo was founded by my grandfather, Johan Burgers was his name. Hence the name of the zoo, Burgers Zoo in Arnhem, the Netherlands. Well, it started very simply, that zoo. My, my grandfather was in the, in the meat trade, uh, as a butcher, in fact. And uh, he loved animals, and he kept pheasants for a hobby. And now we are talking about the last part, the last decennia of the uh, 19th century. Uh, he lived in a small town near the German border in the east of the Netherlands. And he had a, a beautiful house and a garden and everything. And there he collected rare pheasants. Pheasants, you would say, collect pheasants. Well, that was a fashion at the time to have, as they called it, a pheasanterie. That was a... And you were proud if you could breed with these pheasants, etc. Now, from one thing came the next. Um, he got a red deer, and he made a, a place for the red deer. Then there came some uh, boars, wild boars. Um, and at one particular point, 
there was even a beer which he got in Germany from some circus, uh, whatever it is. You have to imagine, in the end of the 19th century, uh, zoos, uh, you had a few zoos. Um, in, in the Netherlands, we had artists, the, what is now the Royal Artists Zoo. And it was a traditional zoo with romantic cages, uh, all in cast iron and things like that. The, the, the carnivores were living enclosed in, you could call it a kind of giant a parrot cage where they were sitting together. And there were usually two or three animals of a particular species. And artists was completely different from nowadays. Um, you could visit the garden, the zoo, if you were a member of artists of the society. And on Sunday afternoons, there was a music stand and there were classical concerts and things like that. And you couldn't go into the zoo by paying uh, 20 cents or something. No, you were a member. Only in September, at a certain point, the citizens of Amsterdam could also, for a few cents, could visit the zoo. So completely different from what we think of today. Uh, but, and it was a traditional zoo. And you had zoos like that in many places. The London Zoo in England was kind of similar. Um, the Jardin des Plantes in Paris and the Berlin Zoo. And of course, Schönbrunn in, in, um, in Vienna. Um, all classical zoos. And my grandfather, because of his trade, his meat trade, he went often to Germany. And then he visited the traditional zoos. And so he started to do his collection. Then, and that's quite interesting, in the late 19th century, I don't know precisely when, there was in Hamburg in Germany, there was a circus director. He traveled around with his carriages and within in it, in it, an elephant and a couple of lions and, of course, monkeys, but then horses. Uh, that was very important, etc. And he traveled from place to place. But in winter, there was no uh, opportunity for putting up a circus and have all the people sitting in a cold tent. So he had a winter quarters. And that winter quarters started out to be an attraction to see the animals there in their winter cages. And then at one point, one of the Hagenbeck family, his name was Carl, he came up with a completely different idea about how a zoo should look like. And in Hamburg, Stelling in the north of Germany, he built a zoo in which the animals were not behind bars, not in big barred cages, but on open terraces, behind ditches. And you could see the animals if he, he did it such that you didn't see the ditch. You looked over the ditch and you see the lion sitting in front of you. That was a sensation. My grandfather came there and he was 
absolutely. He was fascinated. And he thought, I have to do that myself. He went back to his little, little, little zoo in Sierenberg in the Netherlands. And he thought, no, this is not the place to fulfill my dreams. Because you have to imagine the place where he lived. It was a small town. And we talk about 1900 now. Uh, how could you get there? You had to take the train to Arnhem. From Arnhem on, you had to take a local train to Doetinchem. From there, you had to take the steam tram that took you along the road in about uh, 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 something like an hour to Sierenberg. And then you had to walk a sandy road that was muddy in summer and winter. You couldn't walk it. And then you finally came at the zoo. That is his little menagerie there. And then if you were a visitor, uh, let's say in um, 1910, if you were a visitor, you would probably come to the house where they lived, the family, and behind there in the garden was the zoo. And at one point, somebody in the community there said, Johan, why don't you put a little window in, in one of the rooms and there you sell a ticket and then for 20 cents they can go in and visit and see all your animals. So if you had finally made it to the steam tram and along the sandy road and you came to that little window, it was quite likely that you would see my mother there, a young girl, Lucy Burgers, and she would sell you that ticket. And she would ask you whether you like to be accompanied on a tour through the zoo, because how many visitors were coming? A couple of, well, 10, 20 on a day, so they could show them around. But then my grandfather, he dreamt about that idea, Hagenbeck's idea, a zoo with, as they called it, Freigelände, free lands cages that were not hindered by bars and anything. And uh, somehow he got in contact with the, uh, with the municipality of Arnhem in the Netherlands and said, okay, you can have a piece of wood in the north. And there he started. And he built a zoo, which at the time, when also in the Netherlands one knew the old traditional Rotterdam Zoo, which was destroyed during the bombing of Rotterdam. You also saw uh, artists, but they were traditional, traditional. And so what he made there in Arn was somehow a bit sensational also, because he had the lions on a terrace, and there was a big ditch in front of it, which you couldn't see if you were, if you were walking on the, on the footpath for the public. And there you saw the eye, the lions face to face. Anyway, um, that was my grandfather. You met my mother behind the, the little window. And she also moved, of course. And it grew and then somehow uh, my grandfather in the early 30s saw his zoo as almost finished. All the buildings were, the, the buildings were uh, covered with uh, mock rock work 
it was as if you walk, he wanted to simulate a kind of landscape in the Alps. And, uh, so it was pseudo-natural, nothing natural, but a kind of yeah, suggestion of, it's not a building, it's not a barred building. It, it, it has to be something natural. And he started to build a second zoo in Tilburg, in a place in the south of the Netherlands. That zoo doesn't exist anymore. There is now the great Safari Park, Hilvarenbeek, which has more or less replaced it. But my um, grandfather in 33 thought I'll build another zoo there. And his darling youngest daughter always went with him. And she was, at the time, she was 30, 30 or so. And uh, in uh, arranging all the things in that new place, Tilburg, he had to meet lawyers and uh, things had to be uh, arranged, all kinds of things. And the juridical advisor of my grandfather was a, a young advocate, an advocate, a jurist, um, and how do you call it? A lawyer? No. Well, uh, uh, and he came and talked to my grandfather, and his daughter was there as well. And this was a man who was raised in the tradition, university, study law, and all that. Now, not what you would call a zoo director, but he fell in love with my, my, with my mother, and they married. And my father came to live in the Arnhem Zoo. And in fact, it turned out that my father had, what one says, if you are a botanist, you say, he had green fingers. Now, my father had uh, animal fingers. He knew how to deal with animals. He immediately made, fr made friends with lions, with everything, and walked into a, a lion cage. And that's, so that was, my grandfather was a, a simple, straightforward man who had uh, the, the back of a little cigar box was sufficient to make his plans and notes. And my father came from a quite different intellectual, erudite, environment, but they matched very well. In that family, I grew up. I was the first to be born there in 1936. And I had a younger brother, two years behind me, and he will play also a very important role in my further life. We grew up, we played in the zoo, it was self-evident that we always were with animals. I simply remember that we had Cape hunting dogs, hunting dogs, eh? uh, Likaon Pictus, that we had in the zoo. And, uh, at a certain moment, there was a nest of young, young, young animals. The puppies, puppies, about uh, six or so puppies. But the mother didn't take care of them. So we had to... Uh, feed them by bottle. I just see myself sitting there. I was a boy of, at the time, I must have been six years old or so. I was sitting in a kind of cage and over, all over me, there were these crawling uh, uh, hunting dogs 
these little puppies that wanted to lick my face. I, I, I came home completely clean again and the puppies were fat. And I sat there for hours with these puppies crawling over me. And I had lots of other things. This was a great time. And uh, I grew up. But then it is 1940, the 10th of May. I will never forget that. We were already, of course, the Netherlands under the threat of a German invasion. The Netherlands kept neutral in the First World War. The Germans marched into France, but they crossed Belgium and they left the Netherlands alone. And the Netherlands were hoping that in any future conflict, they could remain neutral as well as the Sweden did and Switzerland did and others did. But that was not Hitler's idea. He, he knew that the Belgians would offer fierce resistance, so he marched through Holland. On the 10th of May, Holland, in a battle that lasted only five days, was uh, defeated by the technically and numerically far superior German army. And that started a period in the zoo when there was a war. Uh, but the war was far away. It was in Africa where Rommel and Montgomery met one another with tanks. It was elsewhere. It was in Sicily in the end. But then in 1944, it came closer. It was Normandy. And the elite forces marched forward. And they wanted to invade into Germany, not via the Alsace where the where there were big forts and bunkers and everything. They wanted to, to, so to speak, to surprise attack Germany from the north by getting in. So they had to go to the Netherlands and then from there eastward into Germany. But then they had to cross three great big rivers. That was the Maas or the Meuse. That was the Waal, a tributary of the Rhine and the Rhine itself, and the Rhine at Arnhem. And there were, we are talking about 1944, there were no autobahns, there were no motorways, but there were bridges over the big rivers. And these were big bridges, and they had to conquer those. And that started off the famous Operation Market Garden with the Battle of Arnhem. Paratroopers were dropped north of the Rhine and had to conquer the bridge in order to prepare that for the, the big army from the south coming over. That was a terrible disaster for the elite forces. They were defeated in a battle of Arnhem, which has been portrayed in a film that is one bridge too far. They had crossed two bridges, but the third they couldn't get. Um, that started one of the most difficult periods in the history of the zoo. Um, the elite forces, the paratroopers, the parachutists, the airborne, as they were called, were defeated in Arnhem. The rest of that army could withdraw back over the Rhine to the south. And there we were, still under German occupation. But the Germans expected that this wouldn't be the last attack. 
this would only be the beginning. So they prepared for another defense of the bridge there. And the whole of Arnhem had to be evacuated. Can you imagine a city with, at that time, not that big, but 70,000 inhabitants? They all had to leave their homes behind. And I see this endless road. I was a boy by then of uh, 44. I was eight years old, yeah. I see these endless streams of people leaving the town, the city, with, uh, uh, with carriage, how do you call it, hand-pushed uh, carts, with, with baby, uh, everything that could, was, had wheels was moved. There were no autos at the time, no fuel, no essence, such as the German army. And you saw them. And some of them went up north, some of them went west. Those who went west went the wrong way because in the next nine months, the front was at Arnhem and to the south, but north to the north, the Germans, to the south, the Allied forces. And it took nine months before finally that part of the country was liberated. And we call it the hunger winter. The zoo had to be evacuated as well. But how do you evacuate a zoo? Anyway, the order came that the zoo had to be evacuated. And mind you, it had to be evacuated to Hamburg in Germany because the animals would move to the Hagenbeck Zoo in Germany, the zoo that was the big inspiration of my grandfather. Now, the German army at the time and the German commanders had other worries. How do we keep the Allied forces out? How do we defend the, the homeland? And uh, shall we have a train packed with lions and zebra and there were two giraffes and there were two elephants in the zoo. Mind you, they could use their railway capacity for other things, of course. But then finally, uh, the zoo stayed where it was. All the personal, the, the keepers were gone. A few elderly got permission to stay, younger people at the time were either had uh, gone underground or they were moved to Germany to work in factories and many Dutch people were moved there. But my father and my mother, but a couple of elderly people could stay in the zoo and they had to keep the thing going. No visitors, the gates were wide open and everything, but they had to find food they had to find. Uh, now, that was a problem. I'm not going deep into that, but I can imagine that some things were plentiful, but not regularly. Uh, we didn't have meat for the lions, the tigers, the leopards, etc. But occasionally there was meat. 
because the German army used horse-drawn carriages for the supply trains and things like that. And occasionally a Spitfire came along and gunned such a thing. And then there were a few horses lying dead along the road. And my father got the order also as a kind of condition for staying where he was with his zoo to uh, clear away the corpses. And my father, welcome, of course, because that was meat, meat for the lions. And I remember my father coming back sometimes late at night with one of his, one of the keepers we stayed, and they went with their horse-drawn carriage to the Amsterdamse weg, the road to Amsterdam, and because there was a horse lying there. And then they cut it into pieces, put it on the carriage, and at five o'clock at night, it was dark already, they came back with that. And that repeated itself many times. And my mother would cut the pieces of meat into smaller chunks, and these would be fed to the lions, etc. If I now think of that, I think it is impossible how these people lived. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, under circumstances where you think, wouldn't we have given up already? No, they struggled. They kept the things going. Nine months and regular bombardments, uh, things like that. But also the courage of despair, so to speak. Let me give you one example. We had a couple of hyenas in the zoo. And uh, one of them was killed by a grenade because we were on the constant artillery fire from the south where the elite forces were behind the wild. It was 20, uh, 12 miles away, south of the wall, and they fired on the German positions north of the line. And we had two hyenas, and a grenade came into their cage. One of the hyenas was dead, and the other one, a shrapnel, had wiped away his lower jaw. Mind you, so there was a heavily wounded hyena with a snout, with his a canine sticking down from the upper jaw, but there was no lower jaw. There was only a hole where his throat was. But he lived. And I remember going there with a bucket with horse meat minced into very small pieces. And I had a wooden stick with me. And I walked into the cage of the hyena, and the hyena couldn't do anything to me, couldn't bite. But um, then I went and stoked him, and then I put pieces of meat in his throat, in that open hole that was there. And with the stick, I pushed it in his throat, and he, and he, he lived for a while. Finally, he he died, probably for other reasons. I don't remember because. I, but that hyena loved me because every day when he was hungry, he couldn't eat himself. He was waiting for me with my little bucket 
with pieces of meat. Gosh, what a time. I'm not going to talk much more about that time because, uh, oh. Uh, finally, we were liberated by the Canadians and by, uh, we had Polish soldiers around because uh, Poles also fought at the Battle of Arnhem. And then the devastated zoo had to be rebuilt. And my father and my mother, with the people who came back, the keepers who came back, Arnhem was repopulated, the inhabitants came back only to find that their houses had all been looted. Everything was taken out of it. Just as a joke, there were cars going with Arnhem furniture, everything that deserted, deserted city was dead. There were only the people taking out the belonging. And that was trucked to Germany as, as they called it, Liebesgabe from the Netherlands, love donations from the Netherlands. It was just robbed away out of a deserted city where 70,000 people had left and had kept everything was left behind there. Anyway, it started anonymous rubbles, rebuilt, uh, the zoo had to rebuild, and that was the zoo I grew up in. And I went to school, and I now make a big jump. At the time of liberation, I was nine years old. I grew up with my brother, uh, who was two years younger, and we went to school. And then finally, yeah, what was the future? Uh, of course, my brother and I, and I also had a sister, not a younger sister even. We grew up in the zoo, and we were quite familiar with the idea we would later work in that zoo. Uh, we would, so to speak, inherit it from our parents and grandparents and the family. Uh, so at one point, uh, what uh, are you going to do after you finish secondary school? Now my parents were all so quiet. You, you have to study biology because you will come back into the zoo. And my younger brother, uh, well, if he was to study vet sciences, that would be very practical also. So that was our future. And it was very logical. Uh, so I went to Utrecht to study biology. And indeed, that was great. At the moment, Utrecht University, this year, the biology, the faculty of biology, has about 250 first years students. I came in with 25 of the same age in my first year of biology. And I did all the usual things. And then at that time, the study was so that after your uh, bachelor, you had to go for your master and you had to do a number of subjects. Of course, I wanted to do zoology. And I wanted to do uh, animal behavior, animal behavior, because that, uh, that seemed to me so very interesting. I should tell you how my interest in animal behavior 
awoke. Of course, I was living between animals. I saw animals all the time. And as I told you, uh, uh, hunting dogs crept over me when I was a young boy. Um, but also, in that zoo, after the war, I was, let's say, nine years, ten years old, twelve years. And the zoo was open, and it always closed at sunset. It opened at sunrise, it closed at sunset. My grandmother closed the door poor, the, the, at that time. And at the last moment, my mother would say to me, Jan, um, go walk to the zoo. Uh, see, it's about eight o'clock now. See whether there are still people walking around who have lost their way. And you take them out to the exit and show them out. So then I found a couple of people in the zoo and I walked around with them. And then I always, you imagine, I was a boy of 11. Uh, in Dutch we say eigenwijs. I don't know what the word in English is. Um, I walked with these people and then I came along cages and I was going to explain what they saw in these cages. And how, how remarkable these animals were, etc. And I enjoyed talking what I had heard from my father and uh, all the things. And people were fascinated, of course, a young boy explaining them all the things in the zoo. And then a beautiful thing was always, we came towards a cage and there was a male drill with two females. Drills, the males are very impressive. They have a high degree of sexual dimorphy the females being much smaller. And that was in a cage which was, which I wouldn't be proud of. It was a, an old fashioned cage still. You, we had a few also. And then we approached that cage from let's say 100 meters. And I was talking to the, to the visitors and I knew already the male drill was waiting for me to come. He was waiting for me because he was, sitting at the fence and uh, when I looked at him, he would draw a most remarkable facial expression. He would draw his mouth corners back, lift his lips at the mouth corners, baring his teeth. I called it the horizontal figure of eight grin. It is the figure of eight horizontal with the teeth showing. And at the same time, he would shake his head horizontally from side to side in a big no shake. So that looked quite, quite, it was fearful. It looked quite ferocious when he shook his head like that. And then I would walk up with these people and being completely innocent, and I would walk to the cage, note pretending I didn't notice anything, I would lean to the cage. And these people, they started screaming, don't do that, he's going to grasp you. And I would lean against the fence. And then they would look and see that this male drill was grooming my arm, which I had put against the fence. The little boy hairs of an 11-year-old boys on my, on my arm, he would groom them. And at the same time, he would occasionally smack his lips. And uh, so I understood 
that it was a friendly expression that his drill greeted me. But the people saw it for what it would have been anthropomorphically, shaking his head, showing his teeth, etc. He was going to tear me apart. No. But what then was this expression? And that fascinated me. Because later on, when I was in Utrecht, I read Darwin's book, the, uh, what is it called? The Expression of the Emotions in Men and Animals. It is Darwin's third famous book. His first was, of course, The Origin of Species. A couple of years later, long time later, because his wife didn't approve of his ideas, he wrote The Descent of Man. And there, he, an idea which wasn't alien at all at the time, but he formulated it, that we would have a common ancestry with the great apes, that we would be an ape. Now, that, of course, was completely unacceptable at the time, and Queen Victoria, who reigned over an empire in which the sun never set, she was going to believe that she, the empress of that imperium, was descended from a monkey? No. Charles Darwin never got a knighthood. Anyway, I was fascinated. And I noticed at that point that Darwin talked about facial expressions and about lots of things. And he formulated a principle that was his principle of antithesis. That is that expression movements, signals with an opposite meaning tend to develop also opposite forms, so to speak. And Charles Darwin noted he walked to the London Zoo and was explained by the, by the keeper there what all the expressions meant. He also saw this face of the drill. And he noticed that it must be friendly. And what then would it be? Now, imagine a drill which is aggressive, which wants to attack you. What does he do? What monkeys do? And what apes do? Monkeys do it, apes don't do that. Uh, they, they, uh, they make jumping intention movements towards you, and they nod their head in the vertical direction, in the yes, 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 direction, you, like that, vertical. And, and at the same time, they pull up their eyebrows and stare at you with tense lips. The mouth quarters pulled forward and the lips tense. The attack face. The drill face is just the opposite. The lips are not, the mouth corners are not pulled forward. Tense lips. No, the mouth corners are pulled back and the lips are lifted. It's similar to this, to the face that I show when they are fearful. And then 
he doesn't nod his head vertically as if he is in a jumping intention. No, he shakes it horizontally as if he is looking away from you in a no-nod. It is exactly the opposite of the attack phase of the drill. But for us human beings, it doesn't look like that. It looks as if we are an angry man and we have we, we, we an angry face, etc. Now, that fascinated me tremendously. And I wanted to study facial expressions in monkeys and apes. I read Darwin, and Darwin made observations in the London Zoo. But I wanted to do this systematically and to, uh, so to speak, to repeat it. It, it sounds rather pretentious, uh, repeat Darwin, ha <laughs> ha. Can you repeat a giant like Darwin? No, but I wanted to do that. So I studied biology in Utrecht and I fantasized of how can I do that? And then I, in that time, ethology became popular. No, no, not popular. I should say ethology, the scientific study of animal behavior was a new discipline, so to speak, in biology, founded by the German patriarch of the field, was Konrad Lorenz, and Nico Tinberger, a member of a family which had a number of biologists later on in, and he studied in Leiden, and he started studying sticklebacks. Sticklebacks? Yes, sticklebacks. Uh, are these interesting sticklebacks? Yes, sticklebacks are interesting. If you're a little boy and living in a, in a Holland polder, in a Dutch polder, you play in the, in the moorland uh, with the ditches and you catch sticklebacks and you put them in an old uh, 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 gem uh, pot and take them home. And he was interested. And he thought, indeed, fish are extremely important for the study of behavior because sticklebacks have a complex courtship behavior. Males are territorial. They built a nest in the spring. They, that is a beautiful nest. They lure a female towards it seduce the female to enter that nest to oviposit there and then if the female has done it she is chased away and the male goes in and flows his sperm over the eggs and then she is the he is the one who has to take care of the eggs uh, fish have a bit of a reverse role i have often been asked um, why would it be that uh, mammals take the burden of the rearing of the baby? Well, the, the answer is quite simple. Who cares for the new generation? It's the one who is left with the eggs. And in fish, 
it's often the female that oviposits. Yeah, you have all kinds of systems in fish, but some fish, female oviposits, male fertilizes, and in some species, the male then cares for the developing eggs and the developing young. The eggs are in a nest, in a bit of weed that the, female, that the male has built. The female is long gone. She did never see her, her children anymore. But the male has to see that the eggs in the nest have see, fresh oxygen-rich water and that the urine is, and the metabolites are washed out. So he starts and uh, performs a behavior which we call fanning. He spends his time refreshing. So he is the one who cares for the babies also when they're, and that is in fish, that's quite usual. So the distinction in our species, in mammals, the burden has completely shifted to the female side. And that's also due to the fact that we have an internal fertilization. Some animals have an external fertilization. But even after have an internal fertilization, the, uh, it, the embryo develops in the male, female. And then we are mammals. We have mammae. We nourish the young still a considerable time after it has been born. So there is a strong, extremely strong asymmetry in mammals. In birds, there's also an asymmetry. Usually, females take the burden of childcare, but not always. No, in many cases, not. It's both sexes who do so. Uh, your starlings, your whatever you have. Well, a couple of birds who don't do it. Think of uh, chickens, uh, theta, where they. Uh, the male, the cock, doesn't care. But most birds are monogamous. The female lays an egg, lays an egg in the nest, and the pregnancy is performed, of, uh, let's say, is done by both sexes. Because the pregnancy is simply sitting on the eggs for a long time and not eating all that time being fed by the maid or being relieved and get a pause to show, to be off, but then the other takes the, the brooding care. Anyway, all these things interested me greatly. Behavior, the different types of behavior, but then particularly facial expressions. Why? Of course, that drill in the zoo, that fascinating drill. But also, because when I read Darwin, the essence of Darwin's, the expressions of the emotions in man and animals is that not only physical structures evolve and go, that evolution also has to do with the evolution of the mind of behavior, of our sensitivities, 
of our behavioral programming, of our emotions. Emotions are the basis of our behavior. There has been a time when behaviorism was flourishing in animal behavior, but there were scientists that doubted or even denied whether animals have emotions at all. In a, and now I make a caricature of it, permit me, um, but there has been a time that animals were seen as a kind of machines with, equipped with a number of res stimulus response schemes which were called instincts and they could be conditioned, they could, uh, you could condition them also a little bit. Automats that move, whereas man has a mind, is spiritual, uh, has a language, has imagination, and can think can create a mental world of mental representations and with the means of his language, he can operate in that world. He can change that mental world, his imagination. He can shape the world. He can shape the cosmos because in no time we will be able to go to Mars. My God, uh, would you see a stickleback do that? or even a monkey, or even a chimpanzee? Uh, no, but chimpanzees can do a lot that sticklebacks cannot, and that he also can. So gradually, the idea uh, took form that not only are we physically somehow uh, far away relate to lungfish that crept from the sea on fixed land and changed into amphibians and reptiles and dinosaurs which we got rid of, uh, at least uh, the cosmos got rid of and then we took that place with uh, a number of other mammals. But the mind is also a product of evolution. Animals have emotions, Darwin was convinced. Not every behavior since, behaviorist since then was convinced. But nowadays we are very convinced. Even so that we think emotions are the basis also of all behavior. Emotions, we are men, we think of things. We have a representation of the world in our thinking, in our mental models of the world. We think that's, that makes sense, that makes us uh, rational, rational beings. No, that's only the surface. Deep beneath, under that, we are beings that want things, that do things that are driven to do things and that are driven to avoid things, to keep alive, to reproduce. And then it's interesting to know certain things about the environment in which you live. And the more intelligent you are, the better you can differentiate in that environment what is of importance for you 
And for the stickleback, that's a very small mental world. And for the dog, it's considerably larger. But for the chimpanzee, it's even very, very much larger. And for us, it's endlessly larger. But at the basis of all day is our brainstem. And that's where the motivations, the drives, the things we want, the things we do not want. That's the important thing in life. That are the emotions. And the emotions, they portray these. They steer our behavior to what we do. So I think emotions, and Darwin was convinced of that too, are the oldest things. Study them, and you'll see. Uh, well, you'll get an insight. Um, I think I'm going to stop here, and my next podcast will be about how I started scientifically to study that emotional behavior in monkeys and apes. Why? Because I'm interested, I'm convinced that we are a product of evolution in every respect, also mentally, psychologically, and that makes me interested in primate behavior. See you, hear you next time. Thank you so much, Jan, for this first episode. I cannot tell you how enriching the conversations and listening to Jan's stories has been to me. So grateful for, you know, all these extraordinary stories and information that he's sharing with us. And that, of course, is enriching and, of course, really contributes to well-being and certainly to my well-being. And of course, we know that well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get education and tools right into your inbox so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description today to become a member. 